Thank you for tuning in to the Hunt Back Country podcast today. This is episode number 275. Our guest is Chris Way. Chris is recently a competitive shooter, but has a long history as a rock climber, expedition adventurer, and much, much more, which we will get into. We originally scheduled this episode to speak with Chris about his shooting, but as you'll hear in the first 20 to 30 minutes of the show, we got into many other topics as well. The big goal with Chris and the reason I wanted to speak with him was about a very specific shooting drill that he's developed. And this drill and a specific target and the data collection is something that's helpful to you as a hunter. So Chris comes from the competitive world, but as you'll hear about much of what he is after in terms of data collection on rifle shooting and really improvement, a specific process for improvement is something that should apply to you as a hunter as well. It can even help you determine your max effective range and your true level of accuracy. So we'll get into all that. Hope you guys enjoy this show. As always, you can reach us directly if you have any questions, comments, or feedback to podcast at exomountgear.com. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend or leave us a review in iTunes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Here's this conversation with Chris. Chris, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast, man. I'm excited to have you on today. Man, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited to be here. I've been listening to your podcast, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the kind of diversity of people that you have come on to your show. I listen to a lot of podcasts driving. Uh-huh. Um, t- typically, it seems like when I drive somewhere, it's like for an hour. So I'll put a podcast on at one and a half or two speed. And a lot of shooting podcasts, it's the same damn thing over and over again. Like, yeah. I won this match. I won this match. I shoot these barrels and it's like, holy crap, you put me to sleep. But uh, <laughs> your podcast is full of like really good information. Oh, cool. Well, people will probably feel that way about Steve talking about boots, but that's for like long time listeners. <laughs> <laughs> like shut up on the boots already. <laughs> and that's awesome. No, we, uh, I had seen your stuff pop up in the last few months, Chris, uh, just online. And then here recently, uh, we kind of pegged the audience of like, Hey, who are some people that you want to hear from who aren't part of like the hunting world? Um, or maybe not part of like the hunting podcast world anyway. And your name had come up and I was like, Oh, Chris way. I know, I know what that is. And then I got to look and I was like, Oh yeah, I've seen that. So, and we had a chat the other day about, you know, how some of the things you have done and are doing would apply to our audience, even though you're not uh, too big of a hunter yourself currently. Uh, but man, after we chatted the other day, I was super excited to make this podcast happen. So to kick things off, man, you got a, you, you got quite the background and have done a lot uh, outdoors, especially. Uh, but just go ahead and for listeners context, like some sort of introduction background on where, who you are and where you're coming from. Sure. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Way. I'm 46, married, have four kids, live in Colorado, and I've spent almost my entire life traveling around the world, uh, rock climbing and exploring uh, personally and professionally. I started off as a rock climber uh, when I was a teenager and kind of by half dumb luck and, and half um, people I knew and, and that my family knew, uh, ended up being able to do uh, collection trips for 
uh, the scientific research community. So being able to do what I was doing and then double that into uh, kind of an active professional career allowed me to take the skills that I had and develop those as we traveled around uh, collecting plants and animals for, for biochemical research. So um, in doing that, not only was I able to kind of hone my outdoor skills, but also kind of develop the mindset of larger scale uh, projects. You know, what does it take to go somewhere and do something? What are some of the safety features and elements um, and, and how do different environments around the world uh, contribute to different approaches and, and gear use, especially when for the most part, you're carrying it on your back. Um, and then that led me uh, not only to pursue more school because the, the labs hired me and, and put me through school to do more research, but also be hired um, by different organizations as a specialist, uh, not only a dangerous environment specialist, but a survival type. I, I mean, they, they weren't you know really training for survival, but I guess that's the, probably the best um, description was if a group was going to go do something somewhere, you know, what, what are the strategies and techniques that would allow them to be effective on their own to go in somewhere and then leave, uh, you know, with all their parts attached to them and so on. <laughs> um, and that's introduced me to a lot of cool people. And I've made uh, tons of friends over the decades that do a variety of things. Uh, but all kind of converge on going into the outdoors to, uh, you know, apply their skills one way or another. And it seems like I've paralleled the hunting world for, for many, many decades. And while I have uh, hunted to eat, I, I don't necessarily self-identify as a hunter beyond simply going out and knowing how to harvest food when I don't want to carry as much weight in. Um, you know, being able to catch fish and hunt small game to eat them in the field certainly saves a heck of a lot of weight um, when you're going out to do other things. And for me, the primary outlet has been to climb up big rocks or pieces of ice or mountains. And, um, you know, we got enough gear that we need to carry. Food's usually one of those things that uh, I try to pick up along the way. Mm. That's fascinating, man. It's uh interesting for me to even hear a little bit more about your background and knowing a bit about what we'll talk about, which is some of the shooting type stuff. Uh, I knew that you had a very uh, scientific mind and not knowing your background, I was like, man, is this guy an engineer or something? So it's interesting to hear that you you know, were employed essentially by the sciences and educated there. Uh, and I can see a little bit how that background has definitely influenced the way that you think it sounds like when you almost go into any endeavor. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, that first and foremost, I kind of feel like an adventurer, uh, even as a kid, my dad and my grandpa loved to get out and mountaineer and explore uh, different parts of the world. Um, I grew up the first part of my life I spent in Israel and exploring that part of the world and then coming here and living with my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a mountaineer and climber. So being able to see different parts of the world through their eyes um, helped me understand kind of my limitations and what, what was needed to go do things. But then the science aspect of it um, really kind of taught me to be mature about 
having a goal that wasn't just go out there and see what you can do, but let's go out there and try to accomplish something um, that's, that's bigger than maybe making it to the top or not, or going somewhere and not even being sure whether we'd be able to get back or not. Now it was, can we go and collect all of these things on our own and be self-powered uh, to a certain extent um, in order for other people uh, to, to, to study them. And, um, I don't, I don't know that, that my nature itself is, um, cut out for things like engineering, but certainly, uh, the, the life sciences, you know, biochemistry, biology, that, that, that fits my personality pretty well, because a lot of it really is, wow, let's go discover stuff. And in order to do that, you know, you've got to have a pretty broad skill set. And um, the mind of uh, doing it with more than more than one person. There was a uh, a quote which I'll paraphrase because I didn't write it down word for word, and I can't remember if I saw you write this somewhere or heard it in like one of your videos or something like that. But something Steve and I talk about a lot, and personally just get a lot of value of from our hunting is uh, to us the goal is obviously to kill an animal, but to us, it's about the adventure. It's about the experience. It's about, um, you know, getting out and challenging yourself and all that stuff. And we've talked about those things plenty, but you had this quote and again, I'm paraphrasing here, but you basically said, find your weakness and address it. Don't just do the things that you're good at or are comfortable with. Um, I'm just curious, is that always been your mindset? Is that something that's just developed? Um, it just aligns so much with things that we've talked about. And I just wanted to kind of hear your personal take on that. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I say things like that a lot and I totally resonate with it, uh, being put on the spot to, to, uh, to, to try to put it into words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nobody's ever asked me to do so. Uh, yeah, I think that, um, let's back up to the, you know, the idea of adventure. If, if I say, okay, we're going to go up and we're going to run this loop and it's going to have 10 obstacles on it. And, you know, I keep defining it into more and more explicit detail. Uh, I think, you know, every time I open my mouth, the adventure part disappears. So to have adventure, it, to me, it implies that there's unknown components. And anytime I've gone out to try to accomplish a goal, where half of what we'll be doing, we're going to have to figure out in the field, that half is what I kind of consider adventure. And in order to be successful, you're going to have to draw upon all sorts of skills that you may or may not have been able to prepare in advance. And so the, the best times and the best people that I've had with me are the ones with a diverse skill set in order to be able to accomplish um, you know, whatever it is that presents itself in front of us to be able to continue moving uh, towards that goal. Uh, so, for example, um, on other podcasts, I I say and and pretty passionately that that I love running shoes, not boots. And and you brought up boots earlier, um, and and I love talking with guys who love boots because I love running shoes. Um, I'll have to go discuss that here further. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. And, 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 and like, you know, anybody that knows me knows that, that, you know, 
I love to argue and debate, but I'm perfectly fine being wrong. And right, yeah. and I own plenty of pairs of boots also. But uh, but man, I love running shoes. But for example, the other day here it was beautiful and sunny, and then we got a couple feet of snow. So if 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 the three of us were out and we were doing something that put us back in the mountains, that lasted four days, and it dumped two feet of snow on us, and I was in my running shoes, you know, I'd, I would need to be able to kind of make up for the shortcomings of my shoes. And, um, and you guys might not have to, if, if you guys were in, were in boots, you know, or, um, and so being able to make up for the obstacles that, that, that life kind of puts in front of you. Some people want that to be the goal in itself. And I think that, that rather than that, it's, it's, it's maintaining your sights on the goal that you set out to do, regardless of the obstacles that get put in your way. And so um, to me, the best way to do that is to say, gosh, you know, what am I good at here? And what am I bad at? And what are the likely events that may present themselves and, and then bring up those weaknesses because the percent growth that you can have in your strengths is minimal compared to this percent growth that you can have addressing weaknesses. And that makes you a much more effective person in the field. Uh, and probably in, in all of life is to have that diverse skill set. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be an expert at something because those microscopic gains that you make on the high end of your strengths, they're also important. But if you're going to go out and be an asset, I think your best approach to being an asset is to have a well-rounded skill set and kind of be a jack of all trades, but at least an expert at one of them, right? <laughs> Which goes against that saying, uh, you know, master of none. I think that's ridiculous. You got to master one thing for sure. And otherwise you're useless. But if you're a master of one thing and you've got a handful of other things that, uh, you're effective at, at, at doing in the field. Now you're uh, an asset that a team might want to be able to go and do something. Love it. Steve, were you, uh, where were you at? <laughs> were you, were we went to hit well, we boots? Could, or, we yeah. can go back to boots at the end of this. All right. Uh, yeah. We'll go back at the end. No, I like that, Chris. Um, yeah. And, and I can, I can, um, I can, I can kind of double this back in towards shooting using the same example. Um, my introduction to shooting, uh, to the, the shooting world that I'm doing now, competitive shooting, uh, was at the Sniper Adventure Challenge. And it's a small competition that's done here in the middle of the country uh, every September. And it's a couple days out in the field. And the, the, the main core of the event are land navigation points around a large map. And those land navigation points may or may not have um, activities to do when you get to them. Thing is, it's designed such that you have no idea what the skill that's going to be asked of you is when you get there. So um, you might navigate up to a point that's 12 miles away and be asked to... Um, to list out all of the amendments or you might be asked to solve a puzzle. You might be asked to be blindfolded and do something with your partner. You might be asked to do a physical feat. You might be asked to um, pick a lock or break in, hack into a computer or figure out uh, who a high value target is from a list of dossiers. You might be asked to tie knots 
to rappel off a cliff, climb up a cliffs, uh, take all of your equipment across a lake. Uh, those, those tasks may be things that you're able to do and they may be things that you're unable to do. And the tasks that you're unable to do, you can pass on them, but you don't get the points for. And so doing that event uh, and events like that, there, there's certainly other events, but the, the ones that I've done that are similar to that haven't involved um, precision shooting. They're kind of a great little example of, of life to me, right? You, you never know what's coming and being able to deal with it. If you can prepare in advance, it's not really a surprise. And it's not really adventure, but when you go out there and you're asked to do something that you may or may not be able to do, trying to figure it out in the field is great. But when you have a diverse skill set, you're able to accomplish more goals than others. And I think that's a really good event. Um, Some of the other ones like that, like the Endeavor Team Challenge, they're they're not offered anymore. But but there there's a number of things that say, all right, you know, you're going to have to not only be fit enough to cover decent mileage, but you're going to be asked to do random things. And the team that wins is the one that's the most diverse, right? They've they've accomplished the highest number of these stations that can cover basically any subject whatsoever. Uh, It could be clearing a house or paintballing or making a bow and arrow. Um, it could be translating codes out of a, out of a, a romance novel, um, all sorts of just r- random stuff. And the teams Sounds that do awesome. well tend to be the ones with diverse backgrounds. And it's not, not specifically one, one set of backgrounds or another, but the, the best teams tend to have a really diverse set of skills between the two partners. And I think that's pretty cool to know that 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 you don't have to be, um, you know, a ninja and an accountant to cover all the bases. You have to have uh, the same kind of mindset and a diverse background, and those teams tend to do really well. This is a, I feel like a very unfair question, but any thoughts that come to mind on what would you, what do you feel like you observe or maybe? think you see as weaknesses in other individuals so meaning you take it if you could like a hunter right someone who may be listening to the show maybe it's a fellow competitive shooter maybe it's a a climber just an outdoorsman in general and obviously this is why the question's unfair is you don't know the individual i'm talking about but what do you feel like are some of the weaknesses where guys don't give any effort any time, any investment to develop that broad knowledge. So if you say, here's, here's a very well-rounded individual, they, maybe they've mastered something, but they're missing what, what are those things that guys are missing? Like a base level of knowledge or skills in that you see come up more often than not. And that's a really good question. And I don't know that, that, um, I can peg it straight up. I get, uh, why don't I, why don't I try uh, broader groups? Cause yeah. uh, I can generalize a little bit because I overlap with, with a few um, much broader groups. So um, man, that, that, I know I said it was an unfair question. <laughs> no, no it, I think, I think it's a great question. I think it's, um, and, and, and speaking in generalities, I think that, that groups tend to have common sets of weaknesses mm. and they're much different from one another. So for example, 
um, in in the shooting world, the the NRL PRS world, there tends to be a lot of people that um, have have uh, physical jobs. You know, I mean, for for lack of a better way to describe it, kind of blue collar jobs. So they're very good with tools. They can go out. They're they're used to working hard, getting up, working a long day, coming home, and so when they're put in harsh conditions, they tend to perform pretty good because they have to every day. You know, you think about um, somebody that works with heavy machinery. If it snows, they they're not, they're not going to call up work and say, "Hey, man, it snowed. It's cold out." You know, anywhere in the middle of the country, you know, they would they would laugh at you if if you said, "Oh, well, you know, it's cold or it's snowy or the weather sucks." You know, I don't want to go out and work on this equipment. Um, and so those those guys tend to be um, mentally very tough at dealing with harsh elements. Whereas um, for, for five or six years, I, w- I worked uh, for a company that, that, that ran events. And a lot of the theme was kind of this mental toughness and teamwork. And that attracted a lot of um, kind of suburban middle-class males. And those suburban middle-class males that were doing these team training, mental toughness uh, events put in the day-to-day workspace of the, the guys that I was just describing, and most of them would just crumble. And so it was really easy to put them in an adverse condition. You just say, okay, man, it's cold out. Let's take away your jacket. Let's take away your shoes. Let's take away uh, something to make you feel the elements, but have to keep your mind focused on the goal. Um, and they, you know, the group that continued to go back there, you know, it, it, it was uh, kind of interesting because um, all you really had to do is put them in the elements without the protection of equipment or an office or indoors or something like that. And, and psychologically, a lot of them fell apart. And that's pretty easy to, to, to show them that, that if you keep your eye on the goal, you can get through this. But a lot of people already have that mental toughness. But the flip side is uh, those kind of middle-class suburban guys can be crossfitters right they've got jobs that pay enough that they've got um the luxury of being able under ideal conditions to work their body to be pretty fit and so the the guys that work all day their bodies aren't always in the best shape because a their their work is very hard and it's not even they can't you know do leg day two days a week and arm day one day a week and do core three days a week and stretch and get massages. So those guys tend to be very strong, very tough, but not well balanced physically. And so I think that what what I've seen in the things that I've done is that different populations um, could benefit from from each other's lifestyles a little bit, which clearly is impossible to do. But if I was going to break down one group or build up one group, I would certainly focus on things like that. Um, Mm. You know, the hardworking people, they know they're hardworking, they know they're tough, but what they don't know is that they probably have some imbalances that need to be addressed. And that's why their back hurts every morning and their knee hurts every morning, or, or they, they might be a little heavier because they don't, uh, they can't go to their spin class for two hours a day um, and, and then drink, you know, juices and shit like that because they're, you know, out in the, 
field 15 hours a day busting their ass. Whereas the, um, the other folks that, that can do that, they don't have the mental fortitude to be able to actually apply the fitness that they've gained um, in, in the harsh conditions. And so you tend to see those groups not overlapping in the application of what they do. So the hunters hunt, the shooters shoot, the crossfitters crossfit, but, but, but there's few places where those populations overlap with one another. Um, and, and that's largely because of, uh, what I think of as kind of overlapping weakness skill sets and they don't want to look bad in each other's, in each other's eyes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes that can be kind of rude. I, I don't know if that came across as rude. Um, but you know, I'm not saying that I don't have that, but, but observing thousands and thousands of people, you know, I, I would say like, you know, the GORUCK events that, you know, I led over a hundred GORUCK events all over the, all over the country. And, and I think that, um, you know, my, my absolutely biased opinion is that, you know, you're introducing kind of like a, a suburban middle-class person to an experience of a, of a different population of people and they have a hard time, but you could do that in reverse. It's just that the hunters and the blue collar guys, they would never spend money to do something like that. And so you don't tend to see it go the other way. Um, and uh, so um, I think that some of the hunter's weaknesses, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't hang out too much with hunters other than just seeing them at shooting matches. And uh, I definitely see posts on social media, but I'm not so sure that, that like what I think of as true hunters waste too much of their time on social media. Uh, so <laughs> it would be really hard. You know, I watch meat eater and, and I'm a big fan of Steve Ranilla. Um, but I don't think that he necessarily embodies what I imagine a lot of hunters either. So it would be interesting to hang out with hunters. I think that they're very capable outdoors people because they have to go out in the shit and typically, um, being a climber and looking at, uh, hunting equipment, hunters tend to do things with equipment that's subpar for, to, um, to, in a climber's perspective, climbing, climbing gear and equipment tends to be kind of as good as it gets. And then it, and then it trickles down and you see like, if, 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 if I see people going out with their hunting equipment and gear, although the standards are climbing, um, with, with, with some companies, you know, they, I'm always impressed. Like, wow, man, you're really going to go out, you know, wearing that and carrying all that shit and, and be able to do what you plan to do. Um, but I'm kind of blown away, um, <laughs> with, with, uh, some of the equipment that people go out into the field using thinking like, man, you're going to suffer. And, and they do it and they go out and they, they, they shoot and they hunt and they're effective at, at doing what they do. But I, I think that, um, you know, some, uh, that that that's hard to judge just because it's not something that that i necessarily do yeah no i get it and that's i mean that's why i asked you the question in particular because i wanted that uh external perspective right like i wanted to know uh what you see just in general because uh, you have that 
wide base of exposure to different folks and then you have your own strengths and i was really curious what you saw in that all that was very helpful. yeah i mean i think that most of my opinion you know what it would it would just be me kind of like making fun of stereotypes more than <laughs> you know Which what i mean like too, right in in the 90s uh for for a number of years i lived in oregon and so we spent a lot of time i mean i was only there to, to rock climb at smith rocks and and being that when you come down to smith rocks uh, there's kind of a little walk-in and then a big wall. You'd, you'd more or less see all the groups that came in. And sometimes you get these military guys coming over from Washington and they'd be like, oh, we're, you know, we're mountaineers. And they'd come out and they'd have these huge racks of steel carabiners and all this crazy equipment. And they would have their ropes flaked out and they would be in their, um, you know, super short PT shorts and their, you know, tan T-shirts and boots. And they would really stand out and they had these crazy over dramatic techniques and they'd be yelling communications back and forth and they'd be climbing on, you know, essentially what you could teach anybody to climb on their very first day of climbing. And they're out there, you know, having a great time, but using equipment that, you know, you would just never do uh, as soon as you realized uh, that there was, there were better options. And sometimes, you know, when I'm up in the mountains here in Colorado around hunting season, and I see hunters with these humongous packs and giant boots and layers, like you can't believe, you know, and my wife and I run by with a water bottle, you know, running shorts and a t-shirt and we're, you know, four or five miles from the trailhead, you know, and they kind of stare at us like we're aliens and we kind of stare at them like they're aliens. And then everybody kind of goes on with their business. I think it's, it's easy to be an outsider to any group and think, yeah. wow, that looks really weird. Uh, <laughs> you know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> but, but there's a, there's a purpose to, to all of it and, and trying to learn what that purpose is, I think is a little bit more effective than just kind of pointing like I used to do when I was younger and kind of giggling at different groups of people that do things that were, you know, really bizarre. Um, and, and, and some of that just comes from having spent so much time in different cultures and trying to blend in with the culture rather than standing out. I'm pretty quick to pick out, wow, you know, you're standing out like a sore thumb and there's a reason that the locals do things a certain way and usually trying to learn from the locals is a better approach than coming in and telling everybody what you do, and how, how what you do is better. Going back to the um, suburban guys doing the events uh, that you said may be lacking in, in you know, physical CrossFit guys, but lacking in mental toughness. What are methods you found to create mental toughness? Keeping your eye on the goal and then just getting out and getting exposure. I mean, I think there's not, there's no substitute for exposure and being able to say, you know, there's a purpose, there's a reason you're here. There's a goal that you initially set out to do. And reminding yourself what that goal is and that no matter how much time goes by, you know, all, all of these things are optional, right? And so, mm -hmm. what, and I, I've done some things that, um, you know, were challenging, but optional. And I've done some things that were very challenging and not optional. And one of the big differences that I found, at least in the optional ones that I think translate to selection type events are, you know, that in 48 hours, I mean, I'm not saying that like a meteor can't hit the earth, but you know, you can probably predict more or less where you'll be in 48 hours mm -hmm. and you can more or less predict the shape and structure of life in 48 hours. So what you do between now and then has a lot to do with uh, your commitment to a goal. And if you say, okay, I'm going to go outside and um, 
chop wood for the next 48 hours at, you know, 48 hours is going to be up in the same amount of time, whether you do it or quit and go sit on the couch. But in 48 hours, you're going to reflect back and say, um, did I stick with my plan or did I give up? And just reminding yourself that, that in 48 hours, you'll be reflecting back or in a week, you'll be reflecting back or in a year, you know, at some point you'll be looking back and you'll say, you know, did I, did I cop out and quit or did I stick with the plan and grow? Because no matter what happens, that time is going to pass and you'll be looking back on whether you were successful or not. And you're really the only one that cares. Uh, I find that to be pretty effective as a technique of kind of self, um, kind of self-regulation, you know, cause I don't think anybody else cares one way or the other, but, but you do. So if you say, well, we're going to go out and we're going to hunt for five days and you get super cold the first night and you say, you know what? Like there's a lot of meat at Costco. So <laughs> I think I'm going to go, you know, grab some ribs and, go home and watch football for four days. So you do that. And then your friends come back four more days later and they've got all these stories and great things. And yeah, they suffered a little bit, but they also didn't, um, they didn't quit on that original goal just because things were uncomfortable. You know, now the four days of suffering that they endured extra is going to last forever. And you're going to regret leaving even though you had four days of comfort. Right. Yeah. You just Um, never remember the comfort. That's for sure. Yeah. And I think some of that's just, just simply your mindset of saying, man, I came here for one thing and I got another keeping that goal in the forefront and understanding that, that a lot of it is just your perspective. Um, And, you know, and you can learn to love things that, that you might think are terrible. Uh, You might think something's terrible today, but next year you might love it. So um, you know, it, 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 it's pretty easy to show somebody, but you got to kind of inoculate it slowly because too much and it just overwhelms, but, um, little bits at a time and you can teach yourself to tolerate just about anything. Good stuff, Chris, man. We, uh, had you on the podcast to talk about shooting. I guess we should probably do that here at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I love man everything we covered I love it I mean I'm the one that got us off on the rabbit trails but uh, to transition man tell us so what is rifle craft like let's begin to lay out some some context for what we're about to talk about in terms of your shooting drills why you developed it and all that stuff sure so um, you know I mentioned that I did the sniper adventure challenge with a buddy that I worked with and uh, one of the things that that involved was shooting a precision rifle. And although I'd shot, you know, pistols, carbines, I wasn't a precision rifle shooter. And I think until you go out and see what that actually involves, um, you know, nobody quite understands the level of specificity uh, that precision rifle shooting uh, can entail. And so I thought, shit, man, who could, you know, I can hold up a rifle and shoot something far away. That's got to be pretty easy, right? And, um, and, and at that event, I realized that it was one of the weaknesses uh, that both of us had. And so I started to explore ways to improve my rifle shooting so that next year when I did that particular event, um, I would score better on those evolutions. Uh, and we listed out our strengths and our weaknesses and the shooting for both of us came 
him up as uh, one of our major weaknesses. And so I started to explore the world of competitive rifle shooting. And um, that led down a separate rabbit hole. But what kept coming up is that uh, it's hard to shoot things that are small at a distance. <laughs> and there are a lot of ideas about what helps people shoot small things at a distance. And I kept thinking that most of the things that I read and heard about uh, didn't make sense to me when I combined kind of my life history and my mental approach to stuff. I thought, gosh, you know, that doesn't make sense. I don't believe it. And so picking apart the elements of shooting um, in a way that I could develop a training plan, kind of, uh, you know, being an athlete, training plans are fundamental to any athlete's growth at a high end. Um, you know, pe people can do stuff at a decent level without too much training, but, but in order to be at a high level, you have to have a pretty specific training plan. So I started to make training plans for me that worked. And the simplest method that I found that worked was counterintuitive to a precision rifle shooter, but it was shooting paper at a hundred yards and shooting paper at a hundred yards and dedicating uh, what I saw as a path towards um, some of these precision rifle competitions allowed me to go from scoring kind of mid-pack to winning a national match. Now, I say that, but that style of shooting isn't all that interesting to me. To me, what's interesting is going out into the field and knowing that you're effective at, at being able to hit what you're trying to shoot in an unknown condition. And so then I started to apply that towards field shooting. And when I made that switch, I started to share my results for the precision rifle world so that other people could kind of pick up the torch and take it towards that aspect of competition, because it's really not something that I'm super passionate about. I'm, I'm more passionate about field shooting and that bumps into the world of hunting um, much better than it does the world of PRS. Nonetheless, it, it's absolutely effective in all elements. So um, I've kind of changed the names of, of some things that, that everyone tends to toss around. So, so let me back up, uh, again. So the reason I felt like shooting at a hundred yards on paper was better than training at a distance is that your rifle system has a certain capability and you have a certain capability. And that is, that can be measured, you know, in terms of MOA or mills, depending on what kind of reticle that you have. And so, those units of measurement are angular and, and being an angular unit of measure, if you shoot, let's say one MOA at a hundred yards, right. Then you're going to be, I, I get that it's 1.047 or what, whatever. But, but um, if you shoot one MOA at a hundred yards, then you're going to shoot approximately um, or one inch at a hundred yards. You're going to shoot approximately uh, 10 inches at a thousand yards, correct? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's angular, right? So one MOA at at a thousand yards is still one MOA, and one MOA at a hundred yards is still one MOA. And so, if you're shooting at a target that's a fixed size, and you understand its size and MOA, if if you can hit it at a hundred yards, right, then you should be um, under some, you know circumstances able to hit it at, at a distance right and and i'm neglecting to mention environmental factors but technically you should be able to do that 
But if you miss something at a distance, it's really hard to determine why you missed it. And so that's what kicked this off is you'd go to this match and somebody would miss a target and say it's two MOA. And they would say, oh man, you know, I missed right. So I corrected to the left and then I missed left. And they would write it off as, well, it was the wind that got me. Or they would say like, oh, I, I, I shot low and then I shot high. Let me question the range of the target. Or maybe my barrel's burning out. Or maybe my load's off. Or maybe my chronograph's wrong. But nobody ever mentioned, like, maybe I suck at shooting. <laughs> and <laughs> Clearly, it couldn't have been me. Right? Yeah. And so, and, and, and at 800 yards, that's really hard to say, right? Like, man, you keep missing. And you could say, like, dude, you just suck at shooting. Or you could say, well, the wind fucked me. Or the range is wrong or, or whatever. But if you pull that into a hundred yards, now you've more or less eliminated the yardage question. You've eliminated the wind question. You can check the load question. And what I noticed is that most shooters, when you go to a range, uh, you know, are sitting at a bench or even putting their rifles in lead sleds and they're shooting and they're saying, well, you know, look at this. I shot a half inch group. And you look, and it is a half-inch group, but it's about an inch left of what looks like a name point. Or they shoot, and then they shoot again, and that same half-inch group is now an inch to the right of their aim point. And 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 at the range that I'm a member at, there's a hunter sight in, and so I went and um, we volunteer to help a hunter sight in, and and it was the same phenomenon. People would put out the big, huge, you know, twelve-inch shooting seas, and they would pull their rifles out and they would shoot and they would get a couple shots on the paper and they'd say, all right, well, I'm good. And um, I started to think like, wow, I think that a lot of shooters are identifying with their rifle system and their load as their ability rather than actually trying to figure out what their personal shooting ability is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I put together a diamond target and, and there's been some arguments as to why I picked a diamond, but I'll, I'll get to that. And the diamond target is essentially from the tip to the tip, right? Set up in inches. So MOA. And having gone to competitions, I made a list of, you know, what are the common positions that shooters are asked to shoot from? And typically, right, it's a standing, right? It's a kind of kneeling or bent over it's a seated zone you know you could kneel or sit depending on your flexibility and there's a prone and and i thought gosh you know we're we're shooting from all these different positions but the majority of shooters that i see are just sitting at a bench zeroing their rifle to close enough ish making sure that their groups are the size that they personally want to identify with but not necessarily making sure that those groups nestle right onto their aim point. So I started to shoot and I noticed that even though I had, you know, a sub half inch gun, um, I was shooting from all of those positions. And, and when this started, it was shooting uh, 30 round tests in order to have some, what I thought was statistical significance. So I would do standing, kneeling, seated prone. And then I would repeat that until I had about 30 shots. And instead of shooting, the half inch group that I personally identified with, I had this pattern that was like three inches. And, and, and I thought, Oh my gosh, um, 
something's wrong with my rifle or, you know, something or other. And I did it enough to notice that, um, you know, I was consistently printing these groups of a specific size, but that they wandered every time I built the position, the group shifted. And I started to think, wow, this actually matches with my hit percentage at matches if I consider this whole shooter perspective. And so I started to call it my whole shooter perspective. And so at the time I was a three MOA shooter. Now I could print quarter inch groups and I could develop a quarter inch load. But as soon as my round count kind of breached the 10 round stage and I was alternating build and break, right? Build a position, take a shot, take it all down, change positions, build a position, take a shot, break it all down, change positions. All of a sudden, you know, if I took my widest shot out of all of them, I don't, I don't believe in flyers, right? Because I like to think of it as your 100% capability. And at the time, my 100% capability at 100 was 3 MOA. You know, I knew that no matter what the position, no matter what the stress is, if I throw down, I'm going to hit something that's three inches. Now, I'm sure there's listeners out there that are laughing and thinking, of course you'll th hit three inches. Um, but I would say that after having seen thousands of targets submitted to Riflecraft, that that puts you in the upper 50% of all shooters that I've measured. And we're talking about thousands of shooters, many of whom uh, do pretty well at competition. The average group size that we've seen from the data submitted to Riflecraft is four and a half MOA, right? So I would assume that most of those rifles and shooters can print groups smaller than four and a half MOA. Uh, I've, I've seen the zero targets that are associated with them when people were sending in pictures of their targets and people are printing, you know, two tenths or less three shot groups on their zero and then producing four and a half MOA, um, you know, uh, uh, baseline and stress targets. So what that tells me is that shooters don't practice building positions and alternate positions and shooting and working on the elements that are going to bring those shots towards their aim point. You might get a shooter that, that gets into kneeling and prints a half inch group an inch and a half left of their aim point. And then they stand up and it's an inch and a half low of their aim point. And then they uh, go prone and it's perfectly centered up on their aim point. But in the field, you're not going to say, well, I'm going to go up to the top of this hill and in the brush, I'm going to find a little patch where I can lay prone and take the perfect shot because the elk's going to walk right through that field of view, right? That That's not going to happen. You're going to be out in the field and a shot's going to present itself and you're going to look for a branch that's the height so that you could see the thing you're shooting at or you're going to be able to kneel you're going to you're going to be asked by the circumstance to be in a specific position not of your choosing and the only way to know that you're going to hit it is to think of yourself as that whole shooter and then use the size of that in terms of your reticle to know is the thing that you're shooting at, does it match with that bracket on your reticle such that you can know I'm going to hit that 100% of the time? And when you work from there to bring that smaller, 
uh, you can consistently understand the nature of your hits and misses and, and you can track that progress. And, and I've had, you know, pushing on a dozen shooters, give me feedback that doing this training system has taken them from mid pack to top 10 at matches um, across the board, kind of doing this paper shooting exclusively. So bringing your fundamentals to an acceptable level has a direct performance increasing um, result. Uh, certainly in competition, I haven't I haven't talked to any hunters specifically, but I, I don't see why that wouldn't apply either. Because if you say, well, you know, I consistently shoot three MOA, and I'm shooting at a 18 inch kill zone on a deer, and that means that you know, sub 500 yards, I've got a hundred percent hit rate, assuming that my environmentals look good. Um, you're going to be much more capable of understanding whether or not you can take that shot or not. Whereas a, a, a eight MOA shooter, uh, they might have a shot at 400 yards, but their shooting ability doesn't fit into that context. Right. So most, yeah. so the, a huge number of those shots are not going to be ethical shots. Um, and, and, and so kind of thinking of your, your, your shooting ability as your whole shooter number and putting that into a bracket on your reticle, you can then use your reticle to, to mill a target and say, okay, that's within my bracket. You know, you know I, I have the expectation of, of hitting this if I do everything correctly. And at a match where those targets often get smaller than your whole shooter perspective, uh, it allows you to make a decision on why you missed based on actual data and, and, um, and try to determine whether you need to make a correction or whether it was just a statistical, um, you know, it's just a statistical data point and doing the same thing again could result in an impact. Um, and I think that that would have a profound influence and it has had a profound influence on the shooters anyway, that have invested the time to, to train their technique such that they bring their shooter number down. And when I say shooter number, I, I'm essentially just meaning that that group that they shoot from all four positions, if they bring the shooter number down, it has a direct linear performance, um, metric on whatever their application is going to be. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, uh, the reason I'm super excited about this is for many, but one is accessible, right? Like you said, it's paper and it's a hundred yards. Pretty much anyone has access to that. Uh, not everyone can go shoot at 800 yards when they want. And obviously there's a place for practicing wind calls and all the environmentals and all that stuff that matters. But pretty much anyone who hunts with a rifle can find access to a hundred yards shooting paper and to be able to develop these positions that you're talking about. So it's it's great to me that this is something anyone can do. Absolutely. Um, and then those positions, while you even mentioned, like you develop these from observing positions at a competition, these are the positions that affect hunters too. So like if you have zero interest in PRS or anything like that, these positions are still relevant. Um, I was just going through like the... Sh the um, the trip we had to Kodiak, Steve, and thinking you shot a deer standing with, I think, your rifle across the tree branch, right? Mm -hmm. um, I shot one kneeling. I shot one sitting. Um, 
I don't know that any of us shot anything prone, but that's real. Like that's, that's going to happen. And so these positions that you're talking about as part of this drill matter, and it gets hunters off of the bench and out of the bags and the lead sleds and all that stuff. And as you said, kind of shows them that true accuracy. So to me, even though you developed this from a competition perspective, it is so stinking relevant to all of us as hunters. Yeah, and, and a lot of communities have been reaching out, uh, law enforcement, military hunters. So it, it's it's kind of, it, and, and carbine shooters, um, people are starting to use it because being able to track your progress over time also, it reinforces that the training that you're doing works. And so, uh, you know, we made a website that, that you can log your you can log your targets in and it'll graph it for you to show you whether your groups are getting better or not. Because, you know, a lot of times also, if you're training, people can train the wrong thing and not necessarily improve the, 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 you know, what they're hoping to improve. Um, so this allow you to say that what, whatever it is that you're doing, is having a measurable result on your paper or not. And if it doesn't, then you need to change something about your training such that you can bring those results down. But um, different different populations of shooters that have different interests in you know what they do with their rifle systems are using it because it is such a easy to use and easy to follow um, standard. And so I mean, I'm excited because more people use it, the more... Uh, it may grow to become an accepted standard that people use to say, okay, you know, now that you're at this level, let's talk about something else. And um, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't teach shooting, but, but I have friends that have shooting schools and they're starting to use this with their students because they can measure it and they can chart that growth and they can say, okay, you know, now go, practice what we've been working on and come back when you've achieved this particular level. So we can talk about what you might need to do to raise, you know, your, your overall shooting ability um, to, to whatever the next level is. And so I think that's pretty cool because it gives people insights that help them towards whatever their particular goals are. You know, it's, it's nothing that isn't tossed around and mentioned in books and people discuss. It's just not something that, uh, shooters as a whole have a common language or, or, or an agreed upon baseline. And so I think that, you know, in, in, in other sports and other outlets, there are standards and there are um, ways to talk about things that regardless of where you're coming from, people find that common ground, right? If I, if I say, well, you know, I've got this, this wrench of this particular size or this, this, you know, whatever Allen key of this particular size, people understand because there are only really two common units of measurement. And so when we talk about um, shooter numbers, those shooter numbers could become relevant, but a lot of that uh, has to do with, with uh, the population size that's actually uh, using it. But I think that, um, you know, when you, when you said, okay, well, well, you guys shot, you know, standing off a tree branch and, and doing all this stuff. I think there's a couple um, things that I've seen people do and, and that I was doing when I was first developing the system myself. And the, the first mistake is identifying with the capability of your rifle and load. So if you've got a quarter inch shooting gun, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that you can shoot at targets that are a quarter inch in size and expect to hit them all the time. And then people say, okay, well, um, here's my group and it's two inches to the left of my aim point. And so then they say, well, that must be two MOA. And, and, and that's a common mistake because they measure it, the deviation from their aim point. But the problem is in terms of their group size is double that, right? If you miss two inches to the left, that means that you've created a four inch circle that your shots reside in. And you're talking about being at the very, very edge of a four inch circle, right? Which means that it's likely you could still miss a four inch target. Um, and so working to bring things towards center, not only increases your hit percentage, but it also gives you a realistic understanding of the things that you're going to shoot at because a quarter inch gun, but you can only barely hit a four MOA target. You're talking about potentially having, you know, some near misses. And if you're, and if you're hunting or if you're shooting professionally, like a, a SWAT sniper or something, um, those kinds of mistakes are, are unacceptable on an ethical level, but it could be legal too, right? And, um, you know, not to take too big of a diversion, but when you look online, there's all sorts of crazy conversations. And one of the things that, um, although I'm not, you know, big on the defensive shooting world, but it seems like half the articles are, you know, what's the right thing for home defense or what's the right, you know, all around hunting rifle. And people talk about over penetration of bullets like, oh, well, I, you know, I've got this because, you know, this round won't over penetrate. And I can't help but think, man, you got a 10% chance at actually even hitting the target and you're worried about over penetrating it. <laughs> <laughs> what about the other 90% of the rounds that you're going to be shooting around the target? Um, you know, that's way more of a concern to me than if you actually hit what you're trying to shoot and having the bullet pass through <laughs> nine out of 10 of your shots are going to go right past it. And, um, and we're worrying about the wrong thing. And so being able to say, okay, what is it that we're trying to do and how do we do that and not worry about all these other what ifs, you know, if I go out for a run, I don't usually worry about, you know, satellite parts or planes falling from the sky. I could, but it's not likely going to happen. And I also don't worry about polar bears and wolves because they're not in my neighborhood. And so if we worry about the specific things that relate directly to what we're doing and we measure those, we're probably going to have a better, a better time. Now, that doesn't mean that that one in a trillion times that I go for a run and there's a freaking wolf on the running path that I won't be like, damn, I should have worked harder at like having a contingency plan for, you know, a wolf on the path. But I would rather focus on the, you know, what's the most likely scenario first. Do you um, build out from there? You, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you see a correlation between, I say caliber, but really it's recoil and group size. No, uh, not, not, not personally and not with the shooters that we've done tests uh, from <laughs> 22 to, to 300 Win Mag is the biggest one that I've done. And in mm -hmm. fact, for me personally, my better groups are with the like 6.5 and the 300 Win Mag, uh, probably just because, you know, I take a little bit more time to check 
my natural point of aim. Um, what, what I do see and, and what I think a lot of competitors will agree on is that uh, the reason people are competing with lighter recoiling rifles is that you regain your sight picture faster. So you can watch your impacts hit where they are rather than relying on a spotter to do that. So I don't think that people shoot any less with the heavier rifles, but, but what I, what I think is happening is that um, that recoil is causing people to lose their sight picture momentarily after the shot's broken. Mm-hmm. And without a spotter, it's hard to know where that shot went. Um, now, if you're hunting, you're only, you're, you're, you're basically taking one shot. Yeah. And if you've trained it to know that this is your hundred percent window and it's well within your hundred percent window, uh, you could have the confidence of saying, I know where this is going, but I don't think that um, short of a 300 uh, I've seen, some targets of other shooters with with uh, with with um, you know variety of uh, calibers and and there's not a big difference across all of them. I would have thought for sure, like a you know guys shooting Creedmoors over you know a bigger caliber are going to just consistently shoot better in that in your kind of paper testing method. Huh. No, that's not true. Uh, the um, the timed stress drills, the um, because they're build and break, they're one shot, and so I think that eliminates some of that. Now, if there were multiple strings of shots, you would see either um, a fewer number of shots taken in a time because it's harder to recover from those shots. Uh, but uh, the the weight of the rifle tends to influence people's uh, stress times. So if your rifle is really light a lot of times um, there's a bigger wobble and people spend more time trying to reduce that wobble. And so the lighter the rifle system, the longer it's going to take some of those stress drills rather than taking a 20 pound mm-hmm. rifle. When you put it on something, it's not moving. And so your sight picture is perfect. If you put mm-hmm. a, a eight pound rifle on there, it's going to take a little bit of getting used to that. It's going to be wobbling a little bit. Um, so the weight of the rifle can influence the stress number. Uh, but not necessarily in group size, but the actual time it takes to shoot and, and recover from that shot. What um, going back to uh, guys shooting on the paper, what, what's the, you know, top two or three things that, that improves their score? Like what, what are the most common, you know, flaws that people have in their shooting form or shot execution that that's, they can improve on? Yeah, this may or may not be related, so don't let this take you off that question, but it it might tie in. I was also going to ask, are there certain uh, patterns you see by position? Meaning, is obviously, the further you get away from the ground, the less support you have. Guys are going to inherently struggle to be as accurate as down and prone, right? But in terms of misses and patterns and misses, so if a guy's standing, he tends to go high or go left or whatever, I'm kind of curious of the patterns that you see in that. And again, that may or may not relate to what Steve asked. So sorry if I'm throwing you off. No, I, I can, I can address those. Uh, and, and I can tell you about the data and then I can tell you my hunches. The data suggests that the biggest improvements that people make are, it, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but it's the fundamentals of rifle of marksmanship. Uh, you know, it boils back down to just a couple things that are very important that have a huge influence on shot placement. And, and, it, and it is the, the same old um, natural point of aim 
a lot of shooters are not checking their natural point of aim when they build a position. And what that means is, you know, when you build a position and you get behind it, uh, a good test for that is, is to, you know, you're, you're ready, let's say, to close your bolt and shoot. But before you do that, you close your eyes and you take a breath and you exhale and you open your eyes. Is that reticle still on your target? And for a lot of shooters, that reticle will move off the target. And that's because your body is aligned such that it's providing an input to the rifle that's taking it off of where the rifle would rest without you. Um, some competitive shooters have tried to get around this by doing uh, that free recoil technique. But uh, what, what tends to work is developing that natural point of aim so that when you get behind the rifle, you're not providing kind of uh, directional assistance off the target by your body. And you can practice this such that when you get behind the rifle and you do that, you're maintaining the rifle's ability to stay on target with your body rather than actually pushing it off. And that tends to have um, about a three-tenths from looking at the targets, there's an average of a three-tenths shift off center. And I think that, you know, I would say that we would have to do a little bit more testing, but what, what seems to be a correlative pattern here is that shooters are having about a three-tenths shift from their point of aim. And that three-tenths shift, I think, tracks back to these fundamentals. Um, the, the natural point of aim is a huge one. The other fundamentals tend to have an influence in the X and Y axes. And, and that brings us back to why I picked the diamond over a circle. If, if a simple fundamental error is induced, uh, what I'm what I'm seeing in terms of patterns are you either get a x axis shift or a y axis shift, and if and if it's a simple error, um, that's not penalized in terms of the MOA. But when you combine them, it tends to shoot them off in diagonals, and so those are combinations of errors. So now you're holding your breath and you're pulling the trigger off. Now you're going to get kind of a a diagonal shift, and that should be penalized because you're you're kind of stacking errors. And so if you stack errors, you're going to have a higher score than somebody who doesn't stack errors. And that's why I felt like a diamond was a better measure because it's not a competition. Nobody sees your data except for you. And if you get a higher number, that suggests that you've got more to work on. And hopefully that lights a fire under people to say, okay, why am I doing this? And what's going on here? And I keep scoring, you know, X number and I want to bring it down, those stack things are going to cause people to kind of obsess over and, and certainly cause me to obsess over it. Um, but the common errors are just simply natural point of aim, uh, shooting on your respiratory pause, having a good sight picture. And, um, you know, I'm going to add an addendum to the sight picture thing. Um, there's a, 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 a podcast uh, that rifles only just recently started and they had um, this guy buck who works for loophole and he had a really cool discussion on optics and uh, he mentioned that the parallax knob right when you're in a zone of you know 100 200 yards parallax is a huge issue but beyond that it starts to just become a focus knob and he calls it a focus knob but when you're shooting at 100 on paper if you don't have your parallax adjusted correctly, 
you're going to see a point of impact shift based on where your head placement goes on the comb and getting your sight picture and so on and so forth. So if people aren't checking their parallax at a hundred and the way to do that is you get your rifle set up so that it's perfectly still and you kind of wiggle your head left and right up and down. And if the reticle is moving on the target, your parallax, you've got a parallax issue and that's going to cause a point of aim point of impact shift at a hundred. And you don't get that shift at a distance uh, because of how the scopes are put together. But if somebody just, you know, says, all right, well, the target's in focus at a hundred, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's parallax free. And so doing that parallax test before you do the paper thing is going to be really important because you can get, um, you know, it's not, it's not massive shifts, but you know, you're talking about an inch or so, um, deviation and so somebody if if they never did that um that, that would be one way to immediately increase your score um or find out that that uh you know you're worse than you thought but um <laughs> so but the parallax, parallax is, is very important is 200 it affects at 200 yards and less and past that it's not as important well i think for every scope it's different and, and you can't like okay. don't quote me i listen to the the podcast yeah. but for every okay. scope it has something to do with the tube diameter and the 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 distance between the lenses and the reticle so huh. with a with a um a first focal most most people are shooting first focal plane scopes in the competition world um but on a second focal plane scope, I think it's different. But with the first focal plane scope, you can have your reticle focused and you can focus on the target, but they won't necessarily line up perfectly. So that's why you do the test. And and if you wiggle your head, and I'm, I'm trying to boil it down into just layman's terms, um, there's, there's probably people that are kind of screaming at the computers or podcasts right now but um but for me what i do and and i think it's just a simple test is you know when you're up close you're talking about um trying to focus on on whatever it is that you're looking at and being able to focus on that reticle and you you can induce errors with your scope at close distance but the farther that you get away the more that more that goes away and the way that you can see whether that's occurring is you know assuming that you've um adjusted your diopter such that you know your your eye can focus naturally on the reticle when when you put your reticle on your target and you're focused on that aiming point if you wiggle your head left and right it should not move on the thing that you're aiming at at all if there's parallax it will move and so then you'll spin your knob until there's no movement between the thing that you're aiming at and your reticle and then that's a parallax free setup at that range and that effect has something to do with the tube diameter and the lenses and all that garbage but the farther that you get from 100 the less that parallax has an influence and then it's just a focus knob so people that only shoot at a distance may have never run into that. Or if you're shooting at 300 yards, 400 yards, you might not have an issue because you're talking about the parallax maybe inducing, you know, a millimeter, two millimeters, a quarter of an inch or something like that. But at that distance, it's negligible. But at 100 yards, it could be enough so that it raises your score. Um, and it's just kind of big. It's big. It, it, it's, it's a part of my shooting process because I almost exclusively shoot at a hundred yards on paper. When I get there, I do my parallax check. I do my gear check and all that stuff just to make sure that when I do shoot, um, you know, there's no parallax because I can often uh, have parallax, but 
my targets crystal clear and my reticles crystal clear. But, you know, for some reason that day, um, I need to adjust it up or down a little bit so that there's no movement. And those are the times that I get the best scores. Um, and I, I don't know what the, you know, I, I imagine that here in the West, hunters are shooting much farther than hunters in the East because of just the, the, the terrain and the trees and such. But if you're hunting it, you know, and, and we're talking about errors of, um, you know, an inch or so. So if you're shooting at a deer and you've got an inch built in error, but you're shooting at a deer at 70 yards, um, that's probably not very significant, but if you're shooting prairie dogs, um, you know, and the aiming point is much smaller, or you're shooting things that are, are really tiny. Now you're going to have that influence of, of that parallax shift. So, it, you know, some of it, you got to think about what you're actually shooting at, but when we're measuring minutiae on paper, uh, it can certainly have a pretty profound influence on your numbers. Going back to that, uh, any patterns you've seen in terms of misses by position, just to touch on that briefly. Yeah. As a whole, we're, um, you know, I could say that, you know, as uh, I don't know how many thousands of targets that we have, uh, I'd have to pull up the system here, but um, I think it's around a, a three tenth shift from aim point. And that's like the pattern that I think is the most significant is that, you know, all of the groups combined, there tends to be a, a three tenth shift from the aim point. And it's not, um, it's not necessarily left, right, up, or down, although it tends okay. to be closer to the X or Y axis for shooters. Um, it's a three tenths from aim point. And I don't, you know, that that's kind of hard to guess as to why other than people aren't training positional shooting. And so that they have positional deviations that are significant enough to take them off their aim point. But three tenths is pretty big. You know, I mean, that that's a whole, um, you know, that, that, that's almost two MOA. And so, um, you know, if it's consistent and you shoot and you see your miss go, let's say, you know, you were two MOA left consistently, you would, you would think that that was a wind error and you would correct for it. And then you would be capable of shooting, thinking that the wind was stronger right to left than it really was. And so you'd be able to accommodate for that in the field, except that you would have your first round impacts would typically trend to the left, which I think is pretty interesting. And, and, and I don't, I think that in the short term, that's a quick fix, right? You shoot, you say, okay, you know, you're three tenths left, you correct three tenths, right. And you, you, you get your impact. Um, in the long run, you need to be able to identify that so that you know that your wind calls are good because you're going to start to think like, man, I, I'm really underestimating the wind or I'm really overestim uh, overestimating the wind. Hmm. And, and you're going to start to work on something that's not actually the cause of what you're seeing and thinking that the wind is stronger or weaker. And you're saying, oh, you know. Uh, at this range, you know, the, it must be coming over the berm in a weird way and doing this and, 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 you know, people, people's brains are designed to be pretty creative with coming up with explanations, but you're going to be doing it for something that's not the actual root cause. And so uh, shooting at paper and understanding that, you know, your shooter patterns are printing to the left or to the right or up or down. Um, I think that that's, that, that, that's pretty significant because if you want to work wind, you better know that your shooting is such that the reason you miss is because of wind, not your positional stuff. Otherwise, you're A, not training wind and you're reinforcing the wrong 
habit and the wrong uh, kind of training routine. Just to hit on it, Chris, like, you know, we've, we've talked about all this and the target and the drill and how it goes down. We haven't yet given uh, listeners the resource for like where to go find the information, where to turn in their targets, how to get, you know, those analyzed, track them over time. Uh, so just kind of give us the lowdown on the best resources and place to go to let people participate in this. Okay. I've got a, um, man, I, I'm a total hack when it comes to like uh, media stuff, but I, I'm working on it. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I'm putting stuff out. The uh, There's a YouTube channel called The Craft, the K-R-A-F-T. And um, that's on YouTube. And I've got, you know, some thoughts and I'm working on being able to edit videos, but it's definitely like a hobby that gets the back burner most of the time. The website that you can download the targets themselves and enter them is, uh, it's called Rifle Craft. Uh, and craft is with a K. So R I F L E K R A F T.com. And that website is also uh, kind of constantly under, under development. And if you go to riflecraft.com, uh, you'll see that there's a, a small menu and you'll click the start here button. Uh, it'll ask you for your email. And essentially that uh, tags you and keeps you um, keeps your data private and it, it links the device that you're using specifically to be able to do that you'll print out your target and then you'll hit you'll go back to that and you'll hit enter impacts and there's kind of a, a easy to use drag the impacts onto a target uh, feature and when you enter that it'll it'll um, put a timestamp on it and it'll log it such that if you do that every week, uh, it'll show you your progress over time. And then uh, the way it's set up right now, um, you can enter your baselines and then you can modify uh, your data with a little comment box. And and hopefully um, we'll make that a little bit more user-friendly uh, also. But, but um, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, but... Uh, if you look at your target, you know, there'll be a comment box below and there'll be some commands on the right that if you type in, you can either change the date or you can set a uh, part time if you're, if you're trying to measure your time um, under stress uh, and, and then uh, just sending comments to us so that we can add features to this. But we're kind of learning as we're going and, and trying to give people this resource so that they can track their data and so that we can all kind of come together to speak a common language in terms of our shooting ability so that we can try to help each other be more effective shooters and, and argue less on the internet. <laughs> the world would be better with us arguing on the internet, period. Man, and I love arguing on the internet, but it's not helping anybody shoot better, that's for sure. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> cool. Well, Chris, I, I got more questions for you, but man, I don't want to keep you on here all day and maybe it'll, uh, it'll be fun to get this oh, one wait. out there. And... We got to go back to shoes and boots. Okay. We will. We will. <laughs> all right. So it, it'll be fun to maybe do a follow-up, uh, so I can answer or, uh, ask my questions and get some listener feedback and questions. So we'll definitely stay in touch and maybe do another one some weeks or months down the road. Um, all right, Steve. Take it away, shoes and boots. Chris, your run, favorite run topic. away. Why, yeah, why are you pro-shoot, anti-boot? <laughs> it's funny. I, I like to do that well, largely because um, what, I, what, what, what tends to happen, particularly with, with some of the community of uh, people that um, 
we're doing some of these events is they, they love the idea of like jump boots or combat boots or, or work boots and so on. Um, I'll wear boots if I have to wear crampons and if the snow's really deep. Uh, but, but otherwise, I'm definitely a light running shoe tends to be the most versatile for me. And some of that comes back simply to um, energy output right? There's, there's been those studies that suggest that, you know, uh, that, that, that weight on your feet translate to energy expenditure, uh, that, that amplifies as if you were carrying more weight. Uh, and I forget what, you know, exactly what that is, but it's, you know, double, triple, five times the amount. So if you're, if you're trying to, to save energy expenditure, the lighter your footwear, uh, the less kind of exhausted at the end of the day, your, your, your body, uh, is going to be. And then the complement to that for me is that our bodies, you know, being an athlete, our bodies are designed to do things cross joints. And when you immobilize a joint, you essentially render some of your senses and some of your uh, muscle systems, uh, you kind of render them useless. And so you're developing a weakness that usually you don't figure out until you take away that crutch, which is the, the, you know, reducing ankle mobility. Um, when you take that away, those, those uh, people that rely on boots excessively tend to roll their ankles and have injuries to their uh, lower legs that are higher than athletes that, that kind of keep their ankle and balance um, kind of tuned up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, now, if I was carrying 80 pounds or 100 pounds or carrying a moose, hell yeah, I'd be wearing boots um, <laughs> because uh, there's something to be said for, um, you know, being smart and, and, and using that technology to your advantage. But I w certainly wouldn't train like that all the time. Um, and if, if I was, let's say, it, you know, you guys took me on a moose hunt, I would probably wear my running shoes until my pack got the moose in it and then i would then i would just whip out my boots put my boots on and um i've certainly had some serious crashes in the mountains with with you know 80 plus pound packs because i lost my balance with a heavy load and gone over and not been able to stop myself i don't i don't necessarily think that's because of footwear but i know what it's like to be carrying a heavy load and and um, not be able to keep it up and know that, okay, well, once you start going, you're going over with it. And um, you could put yourself at risk with those massive heavy loads. But although your listener group might be a completely different population, most people in general aren't ever going to come anywhere near to that kind of a load bearing application. Yeah. And, and a lot of the people that I run into, you know, they're complaining about carrying 30 pounds. And, and that's not, they're not gaining anything from, from wearing boots and walking around with a backpack with 30 pounds in it. And they could be training themselves to have future problems by neglecting kind of the health of their, their lower leg and their balance system, leaning on, leaning on that crutch. That's yeah. That's an awesome summary. I got the, uh, yeah, pretty much echoes all my like thoughts and findings. Like I'm, I do carry, you know, hundred, 120 pound loads out of mountains and I still prefer a a trail running shoe um you know just because of that 99 of the time i'm not carrying that weight right and we're not it's not like i'm going to pack extra pair of boots in my pack for the for a 10-day hunt um 
but uh, yeah, that whole ankle mobility. And I think um, is, a, is a big one for me of you're less clumsy in the mountains when your feet can react to the terrain instead of, you know, strapping this two by four to the base of your foot. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. And it, it takes training. Absolutely. And, and if, if, if somebody's used to wearing boots, there's no way that I would you know say that it's responsible to go out with running shoes and get on uneven terrain, but I've spent most of my life in running shoes or even flip-flops or barefoot uh, or in climbing shoes such that my ankle strength and flexibility it, it is up there. And, 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 uh, I said this uh, on some podcast or another that, that like, man, that seems crazy to be trail running and, and, and all that stuff. But Killian Jornet is like, you know, the world's famous, most famous mountain runner. And somebody said, you know, aren't you afraid of rolling your ankles? And it was a video and he got on it. He, he, he rolled his ankle completely 90 degrees and started jumping up and down saying, nah, my ankles are pretty good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, it, it, it's all within reason and absolutely I own, you know, shit, man. I've got, I've got boots that are six, $700 for ice climbing and mountaineering and, and I'll wear those, you know, when necessary, but you've got to understand the tools that you're using and why you're using them. And I think a lot of people just get tools assuming that, well, I saw somebody doing this, but they don't understand the why behind it. And I think that's kind of a dangerous proposition for people first you got to understand the whys and then you pick the tools not the other way around and with media that can get confusing to a lot of people because they want the appearance first and then they kind of try to fill in those voids and that can lead to some dangerous results i think Awesome, Chris. So riflecraft.com, uh, you said it's The Craft on YouTube? Yeah, the uh, the YouTube channel is The Craft, K-R-A-F-T, and Riflecraft is R-I-F-L-E-K-R-A-F-T. And um, those are. The, and then my Instagram is Gun Around the Sun. My name is Chris Way. I'm on Facebook. I love to chat and uh, reach out anytime. I, I be happy to talk or hear input or feedback on ways to improve the site um, to, so that, that more, more user groups start to use it and, and become more effective because I think that the more effective and responsible we are as, as firearm owners, uh, the harder it is for, for us to get in trouble. Well, there you go, guys. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to download the Target, the Drill Protocol, and much more from Chris and Riflecraft. Stay in touch and let us know how it goes. I'd love to see how this drill works for you. And if there's that or anything else you want to contact us about, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button on the podcast so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we will talk to you soon.